in the beginning, everybody's motivation is mixed in spiritual practice. You know, I remember when I started as a monk, it was, I thought, gee, what a great adventure this will be, and also, what good stories I'll have to tell, see? You know, <laughs> or whatever, it doesn't matter. If you do it, it sort of, it transforms you in its own way. Welcome to a Voices of Esalen Archive Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today's show is a selection from the Esalen Vault featuring Jack Cornfield on September 15, 1983. Cornfield is a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts and Spirit Rock Center in Whitaker, California. He trained as a Buddhist monk in Thailand, Burma, and India, first as a student of the Thai forest master, Ajahn Chan, who he speaks about at length in this lecture. Cornfield has taught meditation worldwide since 1974 and is considered one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practices to the West. He's the author of a host of books including 1977's Living Dharma, 1993's A Path with Heart, and 2001's After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Before we get into Cornfield's talk, here's what's coming soon at Esalen. Being with your heart, Enneagram and Inner Work Retreat. Russ Hudson, one of the top teachers of the Enneagram system, and Deborah Rose Longo, an instructor of the Gurujev movements, lead a retreat focused on restoring the centrality of spiritual practice and psychological rigor to Enneagram work. Sign up at esalen.org workshops. Now here's Jack Cornfield. It seems one day that Mullah Nasruddin again was invited to come in the, in the, uh, the holy day to the mosque to preach. They knew he was some kind of a holy man, but they didn't quite know what kind, you know, because he was such a strange and strange figure. So they said, well, we'll get what we can from him. And they invited him on Friday to come to the mosque to begin to teach them. And the, the chant was done, and then he stood up there and he said, oh, people, do you know what I'm going to tell you? And they said, no, we don't. And he said, well, you're too stupid to even start with. And he got down and he went home. They were upset by this, so decided to invite him again. They invited him the following Friday, and he got up again in front of the mosque and all the people. And he said, oh, people, do you know what I'm going to tell you? And they said, yes, we do. He said, fine, then no need to go any further. And he got down <laughs> and he went home. Third week in a row, somewhat chagrined by this, they prepared. And they invited him, and he came again, and he stood up as before, and he said, Oh, people, do you know what I'm going to tell you? And they said, Some of us do, and the others do not. To which he replied, Fine, then, let those of you who do tell the, those of you who do not. <laughs> and he got down, and he went home. I have a feeling that most of what I'm going to say this morning, apart from the stories, a lot of you could tell the others of you, and I could go home as well. So uh, I see it more as a, as a celebration or a repetition of things that everyone already knows in some fundamental way. And in a way, I think all of spiritual practice isn't so much a learning of something new as a relearning of something that's so fundamental to our being that we sometimes, sometimes lose sight of. So I'm going to start with one of my favorite topics, uh, which is myself. Um, and talk a little bit about the kinds of training that I had, just to give you a sense of what it's like in the, in the monasteries in Southeast Asia and so forth. I actually began my spiritual practice uh, 
in some way when I was 14 years old and my mother gave me a copy of T. Lobsang Rampa's book, The Third Eye, which is, uh, T. Lobsang Rampa's a plumber in London who fell out of a tree and was knocked unconscious and when he came to, he said he'd switched consciousness with a Tibetan Lama and he started writing all these fantastic stories about Tibet and I don't know if they're true or not, but um, I liked it and there were Lamas levitating, doing all these fancy things and I grew up, as many people here, in a very scientific, rational, intellectual environment and my father taught in just different medical schools and and uh, was a scientist. And I knew that there was something missing. And I knew a lot of very, very intelligent people who were professors at the best universities and things, and they were, they were, they were smart, and they had a lot of knowledge. But they weren't necessarily happy or wise. And so I was so excited when I read that book because it meant there was some whole other possibility in the world than, that, than uh, what I'd known. But the important point, I think, to make is that people start from all different places. And, you know, you might say, oh, you're reading T. Lobsang Rampa, that's stupid, that's just some made-up stories. But in fact, what starts people on their spiritual quest or their journey, you don't know about. And it can be any kind of thing, and it's not really to be judged. And I've seen people start in one place with something that seems perhaps not so skillful or so good, and, and when they become a little more conscious, then they move on. And so it's really to appreciate all the forms in which one begins to open. Openings take place in so many ways. So I went to university and uh, had this little Chinese um, man as one of my first professors, studied Chinese and Asian studies and Buddhism, and he would sit cross-legged on the desk, this little old man, and talk about Confucius and Lao Tzu and the Buddha as if they were old friends of his. And I, I got very, really uh, inspired by him. And I went to Asia in the, in the Peace Corps after that and worked in medical teams in the Mekong River Valley and uh, started to study in the monasteries. And after that period of uh, work in the villages, I ordained... And it felt very familiar. It was like something I'd... It was just like going to the supermarket or something. It was something very common. It, would, it was the strangest feeling. <coughs> they wanted to have me come to my ordination on an elephant because the traditional symbology is that you, you come as the prince all dressed in white robes. And they did dress me up. They do when you ordain. And it's like you're Prince Siddhartha Gautama before the Buddha. And then you renounce your elephant and you renounce the palace and you go off in search of the of the highest wisdom. Well, the day that I was supposed to go, the elephant was sick or something. He ended up putting me on top of this fancy rickshaw instead and driving me to the temple. Anyway, I ordained and I went off to the forest to, to be full-time with my teacher. And one of the first things he said to me, Ajahn Chah, he said, well, I hope you're not afraid of hard work and suffering. And I said, what do you mean? I said, I came here to be a monk and learn to meditate and be peaceful and happy, whatever. What's this suffering stuff? And he said, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the kind which people are involved in that keeps going around and around, that, that keeps them continually involved in more of it. And there's the kind of suffering that leads to liberation or the end of suffering. And he said, that's hopefully the kind that we practice here. So in, in the monastery, the first one I stayed in, it was a couple of hundred acres of forest, 
and there were little cottages. There was a hundred monks and about eighty nuns, and everyone had a very small cottage in the forest with enough room to sleep in and um, your robes and bowl and uh, in a little clearing, a very thick kind of jungle, so you couldn't see one cottage from another. And the monastery was run very simply. You had almost no possessions. Mm. It's funny. You know, you think that attachment has to do with the things that you have. I had robes, bowl, a few books, and that was about it. <clears throat> a flashlight and toothbrush. And after a while, my teacher gave me this beautiful begging bowl that had been his. And I became so proud of it. It was the only thing I had to get attached to. So the attachment was still operating. And there was my bowl, and I would clean it and polish it and admire it. And it almost doesn't matter what you have or where you are. The, the operating principles inside uh, don't seem to be so much affected by circumstance. And if you're in prison and you only have a few things, then they become what you're attached to. But anyway, the, the spirit of the monastery was tremendous simplicity and a great deal of uh, care or, or impeccability of dignity. There were hundreds of rules that the monks had to follow of how to stand and walk and eat, and I thought they were all stupid in the beginning because they didn't make sense rather than some other way. But in trying to follow them, one discovered that you had to break your habit and you were supposed to hold your bowl in a certain way or walk in a certain fashion, and it made you become very conscious of all the things that you did you were supposed to go to the bathroom in a certain way. We had lots of bowing. You'd bow when you went in your cottage, and you bow when you met the teacher, and you bow to every senior monk. And since I was a new monk, everyone was a senior monk. I was bowing all the time. I got used to... First, I didn't like it. Then I kind of got to where I, I could bow to anything. You know, go to the bathroom, and you bow to the toilet, and then you come back out. And so we'd live very simply and do some hours of meditation and uh, chanting um, and a lot of silence. And every morning they'd ring the bell at 3.30 and we'd get up and go and sit for an hour and then we'd do the morning chanting. And then before dawn you'd put on your robes and just as sun was breaking, get your bowl and walk for about three to five miles each direction to one of various villages around another five miles back and walk through the streets at sunup with the begging bowl. And it was one of the most beautiful things. It was like turning the clock back 2,000 years, because the villages, this was in northeast Thailand, are very simple and almost no cars or machines. So you walk through kind of either muddy or, or dusty earth streets and there are bamboo and wood houses and people come out and they wait for you um, and you walk silently through the street and then they put a little of what they made for themselves for the day, some hot rice that they've cooked that morning and whatever curry or thing they have, they just kind of put in your bowl. And the old ladies would get down on their knees and wait in the dirt. And it was just the most amazing thing, especially going to a poor village. Because we're all so rich by any standard of those villages. And here were these people who were really quite poor, who would come out, get up very early in the morning, prepare food, and wait with tremendous reverence to offer you some part of the little food that they had. And it was a very, very powerful act. It was a powerful act to be given that food, because you weren't allowed to say anything. You couldn't say, thank you, you know, Mrs. Um, Somdao, for that nice mango. I really wanted a mango for a while. You just had to kind of very quietly walk and take what you were given. And the only way that you could repay them was from the spirit of your own practice. And it was just the most wonderful 
wonderful sense that they so honored and revered what the monks stood for and what they were doing that even though that in the poor villages they had not so much to eat and to spare, they would give of the little they have because they so valued that in their society. It was really beautiful. And I lived for some time in some very uh, remote monasteries in one that was a kind of series of ca uh, caves that the monks would live in. And the villages in the dry season we would go to were so poor there was rice, but there was very little for curry and they'd have certain kinds of new tree leaves that they'd chop up and curry made out of bats or, or fried grasshoppers and all these, just about anything that, that was vaguely edible in the dry season. They'd, I never liked that stuff, but you know, when you're hungry, you kind of get used to almost anything. Grasshoppers never, never really made it, but but the spirit, the spirit of it, and in the in the monastic tradition, the monks are not allowed to keep food overnight, which means that um, you couldn't just go off and be a hermit in a cave. That every single day you have to come down to a village or to where the, some lay people are and interact with them to have them give you food and give them teachings, either silently by your presence or whatever words you speak after your meal in the monastery if they visit you. So it's all interwoven. It's, it's knit in a way, designed so that the monks and the society around really support one another in their spiritual uh, practice. There was a tremendous amount of surrender in the monastery. I remember we, when, we, when I first went there to learn to sit in meditation, um, there was a platform for the monks, and it was this polished stone floor. And then a little below where all the lay people sat. So, I mean, we didn't have zafus and nice cushions and stuff. You put down one square sitting cloth, it was like a little handkerchief, and then you sit down on the stone. Well, I sat down, and it hurt a lot. So I would go, and I'd sit, and they'd be meditating, and I'd kind of be squirming, trying to find some way to sit comfortably. And then I figured out how. There were two big pillars that supported the temple. And if I went in early and got a seat right near the pillar, then when all the monks closed their eyes to meditate, then I could lean against the <laughs> pillar. Yeah. So it was all right. I kind of worked that out for about 10 days or so. And then one night Ajahn Chah was in there giving a talk and we were all sitting around. And he said, to undertake the path of Dharma is to learn to become independent. He said, to not learn, to not need to lean on anything. And he pointed at me and I went, oops. <laughs> So that was the end of my leaning career. Um, and it was really somehow the spirit of the whole thing. They, they made you shave your own head. I'd never used a straight razor, and I remember what a terrible mess I made of it the first time. And everything one had to learn to do in a mindful and careful way for oneself. Uh, Ajahn Chah said that in spiritual practice, there are, there are two ways to practice, or two, two levels of practice, really. The first level of practice has to do with harmony in one's life, and that is by keeping the precepts, by not, not speaking falsely, by not stealing or lying or uh, anything else um, that harms people. Your life comes into a certain kind of harmony, and at the same time, by, by meditating some, you can make your heart open, your mind quieter, so things become, things become peaceful in your life. 
And that's the first kind of practice, you know, you om before meals and you, you're, you speak kindly to people. And the fruit of it is that, is that you get a, a genuine spiritual happiness comes in your life. The second level of practice, the second way of practice, he said, has nothing whatsoever to do with comfort. The second level of practice is the practice of liberation. And there, comfort goes out the window. It's not to say one need be uncomfortable, but it's not just to be happy or to find harmony. It's to really take your circumstances and arrange your life and, and uh, how you are, to go to the very center of your being, to find the whole meaning of what one is and what consciousness is. And that has nothing whatsoever to do with comfort. Um, it's a very different kind of task, and I think the spirit of Martin Luther King, and for those of you who went to that film last night, was that second kind of practice. I remember also uh, thinking about Martin Luther King, and the, the issues it brings up. In the monastery, it was during the Vietnam War time, and I'd been protesting against the war when I was a layperson, but then in the monastery, I was just meditating, and two friends who were in uh, the involved first in Project Air War in Laos to stop the bombing, and then in the Quakers in in uh, very dangerous parts of South Vietnam. They were they were feeding people and uh, doing some wonderful relief work. They came to visit in the monastery, and they were really upset. They said, "How can you be here?" Because in the mornings when we'd be walking to collect alms food in the rice paddies, you'd see the B-52 bombers go overhead. And the monastery was near the Lao-Cambodian border, so at night you could see flashes from the bombs. And they say, how can you sit on your ass here when this is happening so close by? And they stayed for a few days, and, and in the end I think they understood something that was kind of an answer to that, which was that I don't know how many of you have ever had, uh, ever been in a place where there's war, but it just makes people crazy. And even people who are normally um, moral and kind people become just insane. And there's pillaging and raping and stealing and, and the kinds of forces of aggression and things that are unleashed. Um, and it was very close by. And what they saw was that this monastery of a couple of hundred acres was kind of a living library. It was a place where you could walk in and the whole, the whole purpose of its being there was to train people in compassion, in awareness, in understanding, um, in kindness. And so you could walk in and you could lose a, a valuable um, jeweled ring or drop your money in the middle of the monastery and someone would pick it up and save it for you. you know. Or you could come in upset by the worst tragedy and there would be someone there to understand it, you know, understand your grief, understand death, and to really bring some wisdom and comfort to you. And what they began to see was that that monastery was like an island of sanity in a world of insanity. And it preserved in its way and in its being, which it couldn't have had it gotten involved in all the politics and the, and the dozens and hundreds of wars that have happened over the centuries around it. it. It preserved this space for people to come and touch and visit and be re-reminded of, of the highest of human values of that capacity. And so it's not really a question of one or the other, 
but of each of them, both the work of service and the work of a place like the monastery, to provide something that's really valuable or needed in, the, in these times in the world. So beside a lot of surrender, giving up everything, you know, um, uh, and a great deal of discipline in the practice, um, Ajahn Chah himself was actually a very funny man, and he taught with a lot of humor and about himself and everyone else. Someone asked him one day why he had become a, a monk, and he said, well, you know, it started when I was little. We used to play house, as all children do, you know, and doctor and nurse and all these things. And he said, when we started to play the games, like that with the other kids, he said, I would always, he said, it was just natural, I would always sit up a little higher than the rest of them and ask them to bring me sweets and make <laughs> offerings. And it seemed like such a good scam, he said, that I just grew into it. And he talked about his own practice. He wandered for years because this monastery was in the tradition of the, it's called the Tudong, or the, the Tudanga, the forest monks. And you eat only one meal a day. Some other monks can eat twice a day. And mostly you live very simply in the forest, under the trees or in real simple huts. And he spent 20 years wandering when there's still lots of tigers and, and wild rhinoceros and things like that in the jungles, in the forest, and visiting various great masters, living with them for a while and wandering off again to practice alone. He said it was very hard. He left home after his... His father died of cancer, and he, he w wanted to understand about death. He said, if you don't understand about death, life is very confusing. It's the one thing you must learn to understand. And he said he remembered sitting in the forest and, and meditating, and it was so difficult. One day he was sitting there, and this storm came in the dry season, and all his things were out, and this unusual rains came and w soaked everything he had. And he was sitting there, and tears were coming down his cheeks, and he was c crying because it was painful, and he had a lot of doubt and difficulty. And he said, but he just sat through it all. He just he said, there's a certain quality of daring in him, being willing to do it anyway. And most of the monks in those times had malaria. Even still, it was fairly common. And he said, all that you would do, you, you'd get a little quinine bark if you could, but the rest of it was just to sit with it and, uh, and shake and make it your meditation. And they were very, very strong people. And it was this process of sitting over and over again with whatever life brought and learning to open to that. And it brings a tremendous sense of inner uh, strength and endurance and wisdom as well. And then he, you know, we'd sit around under his cottage a lot and be with him. People would come visit and he'd get visitors coming and he would just talk about the monks as well as the, the way of practice and he'd say, well, you know, I mean, look at the, look at the kind of students that I have. This one, this one here, all she does is like to sleep. That's her thing. She just, you know, gets up late and goes to sleep early and he's always sick. He's the one that always likes to play sick. And he would, he would kind of make fun of people, but very, very incisively. And he, he likes to doubt in that one. He's our eater, you know. One meal a day, and he still gains a lot of weight. Look at him, you know. Or, and me, I like to play teacher. And he would just kind of go around and, and, and make fun of people. I remember we went, one time I brought Ramdas there. We were traveling in, in Asia together. And Ramdas had just come from being on the beach in Phuket, which is this lovely kind of southern island like Bali off the coast of Thailand, and doing yoga and tanned and sunning and jogging and whatever, and really taking care of himself. And 
So we're sitting around, there are about 10 of us traveling together, and the first thing he does, he looks over and he says, hey, who's that, who's that old man you brought with you? And it's around us trying to look young and whatever, and started giving him a hard time immediately. And, um, he wasn't polite at all. When you came up, he saw into you very directly, and wherever you know you were attached or whatever your trip was, it was sucked right out on the table. And, well, what do you want to do about that? But it was done with a lot of a lot of humor and a lot of love. He said actually that in practice one should pay attention to oneself 95% of the time, and maybe 5% of the time look at the other people around. And I remember. <coughs> Um, being very frustrated in the early uh, months of my practice, which I talked about before, it was really hard. Lots of hours of sitting, and when you sat under his cottage on the stone floor, you couldn't get up until he dismissed you. Um, and it would be sometimes hours, and he'd be talking to the rice farmers about water buffalo, to sit and sit and wait. When can I meditate? You know, of course that was the meditation, but it took me a long time to figure that out. Anyway, one day I went to him. I was really frustrated, and I said you know, this is too much. I want a quiet monastery where I don't have to talk to people and I can just meditate all the time, you know. And I, and I said, I mean, it's not so well run here, it's too noisy. Uh, and I said, you, you spend all your day talking to all these people, you know, just hanging out. I mean, this is, what kind of enlightenment behavior is this, you know? And I was, I was really upset, I'm going to leave. So you don't seem so enlightened to me. And he said, good, that's wonderful. I said, why is that wonderful that you don't seem so enlightened? He said, because if I fit your model of enlightenment, you'd still be caught in looking for the Buddha outside of yourself. It's not to be found there. There's nobody that you can imitate. Even if somebody's really wonderful, like whoever inspires you, whether it's um, Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or uh, Swami so-and-so or some Tibetan Lama, you can't be them, and it's not a, not a practice of imitation, but of somehow coming to the, to the center of that wisdom in your own being. Um, they just, they, they take, t- take so many different forms, lamas and swamis and Zen masters and whatever, and the, uh, it's not a question of imitation at all, but of discovery of that somehow within yourself. So the ways we worked in that monastery were first to learn to be mindful. There were ways to sweep and ways to draw water, to do it in a really careful or impeccable way with a kind of gentleness or tenderness and yet with with real full attention. He worked a lot with people overcoming the things that they were afraid of. If you were if you were afraid of the dark or ghosts or any of those kind of things, then you were given the meditation to sit in the burning grounds, in the charnel grounds all night, which I did sometimes, not so much out of fear, but I was just interested to see what would happen there. If you were sleepy, which I was a lot, I told you, he had me walk a lot or walk walk backwards in the forest if you're really sleepy. Walk backwards in the forest at night, that will keep you awake. You know, I was still sleepy. Because I'd walk and then I'd sit down every time I'd go to sleep. So he said, fine, there's a well near your cottage. You go, sit. So I go and I sit right on the edge of the well. (laughs) Begin my meditation, following the breath, listening to sounds, getting very peaceful. (laughs) 
there's 50 feet of space there. The, the adrenaline rush. <laughs> Wake you right up. <laughs> if you didn't like noise and you wanted to meditate in quiet, he would assign you to the monastery in Bangkok. You know, on a busy street. If you like to chatter and talk and hang out, he would send you to some cave, some remote monastery. He'd kind of figure out what your game was, and then he'd, you know, and, and I mean, his teacher, that, that was nothing. His, his teacher and people with him would send people out who were afraid in forests where there really were tigers and things like that. And he, he used to laugh about it. He said people would be there and, and they were supposed to be doing their mantra or their meditation and their mantra would change and they'd start thinking, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming, you know, which is the only mantra you could probably do to bring the tiger to you. <laughs> But anyway, so one of the first ways of the whole spirit of working was whatever you were afraid of or attached to was to cast you in that situation so you would learn how to deal with it with some equanimity. Then the other way was to learn how to let go, not just to overcome it, but also how to let go of things. And so if you had desire, he would talk about, he said, relate to desire the way a parent relates to a child, a little kid, you know, the kid comes up and says, um, Daddy, can I have a ride on an elephant? Sure, kid, you know. Daddy, can we go, Mommy, can we go for, for an airplane trip? Okay, kid, someday, you know. And so let your desires come. Can I, can I have um, a whole bucket of sweets? Sure, sometime, you know. Let your desires arise and say, yeah, sure, someday, and then just let them go, not, not get really entangled in them. The same for doubts or fears or judgments, which I talked about in that discussion of the hindrances, allow them to arise and see their true nature, which is just words or pictures in the mind, and don't identify, not to identify with the physical body or the thoughts or feelings. Make the mind so much bigger that they can come and play and go, and there isn't that kind of grasping or fear. Not to identify with the intellect either, you know, people, Buddhism has so many elegant intellectual systems and philosophy and he would make fun of people who studied too much and learned too much. I remember when he was on a, a trip to England, there was a woman, um, an English lady, who part of the old Buddhist uh, establishment um, for years and years in England. And she'd studied the Abhidharma and all this Buddhist psychology, and she came to him because she heard he was a great master. And she was asking him all these questions about the, these mind states, the 52 mental factors and the 108 kinds of consciousness and how this fits in with that. And she'd never done practice. She just sort of liked to play with this. And finally he said, you know, lady, you are like a woman who keeps chickens and picks up the shit instead of the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> It just stopped her cold, <laughs> she might imagine. <laughs> On October 21st at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time, Eslin is honored to host a virtual book tour with Susanna Barkataki, author of Embrace Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. Susanna supports practitioners to lead with equity, diversity, and yogic values while growing thriving practices and businesses with confidence. Join Susanna for a conversation with Danny Fluker Jr., queer Atlanta native and the creator and executive director of Black Boys Ohm. 
Danny is an Esalen teacher and residence alum and a yoga and meditation teacher, writer, and activist whose vision is to uplift the black community, black boys in particular, with programs centering on their physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Tickets to the event are $35, but as part of our end-of-the-year campaign, Esalen is offering free tickets to the first 50 people who sign up to become a new friend of Esalen. You'll receive the comp code when you become a friend, so go to friends.esalen.org. Now back to Jack Cornfield. So I, just to give you a little more of the, the sense of his spirit of practice, I read you, I read you a, the question that I asked him. I said, I still have very many thoughts. My mind wanders a lot, even though I'm trying hard to be mindful. And he said, don't worry about this. Try to keep your mind in the present. Whatever there is that arises, just watch it and let go of it. Don't even wish to be rid of the thoughts. Then the mind will reach a natural state without discriminating between good or bad, hot and cold, fast and slow. No me, no you, no inside or outside, just what there is. When you walk down the road, there's no need to do anything special. Simply walk and see what there is. Wherever you are, know yourself by being natural and watching. If doubts arise, let them come and go. It's very simple. Hold on to nothing. He said, sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning and continue until you fall asleep at night. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What's important is only that you keep mindful whether you are working or sitting or going to the bathroom. Each person has their own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, some at age 90. So too your practice will not all be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and your heart will become quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You'll see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. It's really the, the heart or the spirit of his teaching of naturalness and opening in every circumstance to come to a kind of balance and not imitate. And I remember he, he set up a monastery just for Westerners after I left, and it's still there. It's a wonderful training monastery. The abbot is a Westerner as well. And the villagers who, who helped build this, this uh, the main temple building for this sparse monastery in the huts, they came and complained to him one day. They said, you know, it, they're, they're getting ready to celebrate Christmas there. They put up a Christmas tree and they said, we built these, these foreigners a Buddhist monastery. Now they're doing Christmas. And uh, they were upset. And so Ajahn Chah sat down and listened to them for a while. And he said, you know, as best as I understand it, he said, the teachings of Jesus are to be moral, to, to speak what's true, to be kind, um, to another person, to love your neighbors as yourself, and so on. He said, it sounds pretty good to me. 
<laughs> he said, but if you insist, if you don't think that they should celebrate Christmas there, all right, then we'll have a new holiday. We'll call it Chris Budimus. <laughs> <laughs> so in that village, that monastery, they celebrate Chris Budimus now every year instead. And he was really wonderful because he wasn't stuck in some, some particular form. So I was there for, for some long period of time in training, and then finally I did leave to go to a Burmese monastery to do very intensive training um, in total solitude. And when I came back, after all this, lots of practice of other kinds, and, and after I finished, he just looked at me and he said, well, did you learn anything you couldn't have learned here? And I said, well, not really. I guess it was all here, too. He said, I know, I, I could have told you that before you left, but you really wouldn't have understood that it's always wherever you are if you're able to open to it. And then I told this other monk who was sort of the deputy abbot and all these things and all these tales and visions and lights and things that happened. And he listened very kindly and he said, oh, something else to let go of. And that was all he said about those years of practice. Anyway, I left that monastery and I went to do training in a monastery of the teacher Mahasi Saido of Burma. And I did a retreat for about 13 months where I stayed in one room. Um, the only time I would go out would be to see the teacher for an interview uh, every couple of days for like 15 minutes. And I would go and walk and pick up some food and come back in the morning. Other than that, for that 13 months, I just stayed in that room. And the practice was to sleep four hours, if you could, or as little as you could, and then to sit for an hour and walk for an hour, alternating for um, 18 to 20 hours a day, and to pay attention to what happened to you in the body and mind, using mental labels. So you'd in and out for the breath, and then a thought would arise, and you'd note the thinking, and then you'd feel sad, and you'd note sad, and then your knee would hurt, and you'd note pain, and then some vision or lights would come, and you'd note green or seeing. And for for 20 hours a day, simply to observe the nature of the heart and the body and the mind and how it worked. The first part of it was very difficult. Huge emotional storms and turbulence and so forth. But after a while, it led to what I talked about the other day when I went through the stages of meditation, where, where the mind became very clear and open and it was like I could dissolve the world, that what came of sights and sounds and perceptions, instead of being solid the way they seem, it's like you could look through them and see everything arising and passing out of the void. It was really extraordinary and find some kind of like shamanic or, or um, uh, equilibrium or balance in it. It also did amazing things to the senses. I remember walking one day to get my food in the monastery, and I had to walk around a couple of cottages and down to this place. I'd never had a sense of smell like that. It was like I was a dog or something. Every two feet, there would be other kinds of odors of animals and plants, or times when, the, when I, I would be sitting in the subtlest kinds of sound, I'd hear the sound and open my eyes, and there would be this tiny little spider crawling <coughs> on a window on the other side of the cottage, making no noise at all, and I would have heard it. And just all kinds of experiences. But the most important of them was this ability both to stay centered and to be able to see in a, with enough concentration and awareness that what seemed solid, what seemed separate, would dissolve. Did that for quite a long time, and I came out of there. I was really 
already pretty stoned. And then I went to, went to this monastery in Rangoon called the Sunlun Monastery, Sunlun Sayadaw. They work you very hard there. They do heavy breathing. And what you do is you sit, you do it sitting up, and you do, they did two hour sittings. I remember because I first went in the hall the first day, it's this huge hall and the walls are covered with colored mirrors and mandala patterns and this giant golden Buddha at the end. And it was a holiday, usually there's only 50 people there, but here there were 500 people in this giant mirrored hall and sitting up and they were all breathing as hard as they could. And the Sayadaw, the meditation master there, was more like a coach than he was like a, like, I mean, he'd go around harder, you can do it, breathe fuller, you know. And they're all, so we, we did that for an hour, just concentrating on the breath. And then the second hour, you sit motionless and allow whatever your experience is to happen and pay attention to it. And we did that um, four times a day. I wasn't there for that long, I was only there for about 10 days, but I tell you, by the end of the first few days, <clears throat> I wasn't there at all. <laughs> it was really an amazing training. And again, their training was to learn, first of all, to sit through anything and <coughs> stupendous kinds of um, pains and, and body releases come, and you just sit and experience it and let it all be an internal thing. And then the second was to dissolve the world, to, to use Don Juan's phrase again. And uh, um, then I went and I studied with this beautiful monk, Ajahn Jamnian, who, um, if, you, if you do find a copy of my book, it's just back in print now, list of that Living Buddhist Master's book. Um, he's, he's in it and there's a picture of him. He was a really beautiful and handsome man, um, a great deal of loving kindness. He taught loving kindness meditation a lot. And I stayed at his monastery for a while, and I discovered, uh, being there and practicing, that a lot of the nuns, and quite a few of the monks as well, were really there because they were in love with him. That he was so handsome and beautiful, and he had this sweet speaking voice, and, and just such a feeling of loving kindness, and they were all kind of gaga and stuff. <laughs> so I went to him one day and I said, do you realize, I mean, they didn't come to practice, they came here because, you know, they're all, all in love with you. He said, of course I know that, you think I'm stupid? I said, well, well what, what do you do about it? <clears throat> and he said, nothing. He said, whatever brings them is all right with me. He said, whatever brings one to the Dharma is fine. He says, because then I teach them and I give them a training and meditation and practice and things to do and they get over that. And it's a really, it was a beautiful lesson to see that it really doesn't matter. In the beginning, everybody's motivation is mixed in spiritual practice. You know, I remember when I was started as a monk, it was, I thought, gee, what a great adventure this will be. And also, what good stories I'll have to tell, see? You know, <laughs> or whatever. It doesn't matter. If you do it, it sort of, it transforms you in its own way. Anyway, I came back to this uh, country after, after being in Asia for five or six years the first time. And I came back in robes. I'm going to see if I could live in, in uh, America as a monk. <clears throat> but there weren't any other monks or monasteries at that time. I had a pretty hard time. I stayed at my parents' house first for a while and they would drive me down to the Lao embassy with my begging bowl and go and put some rice and stuff in. And uh, I took a train up. My mother put me on a train because as a monk I didn't handle money. 
And I got off in Grand Central Station. I had my robes and my begging bowl. I was barefoot. And I was supposed to meet my, my other sister-in-law. Um, it had been her birthday a couple weeks before, and so as a gift, her husband had given her a gift certificate for a day at Elizabeth Arden's, you know. You get a facial and manicure and a sauna and massage, and oh, it sounds really rather lovely. So she said, all right, your train comes in, I'll meet you just in front of Elizabeth Arden's on Fifth Avenue, and then I'll drive you back to Long Island. So I get off at Grand Central Station, and I'm just out of the forest, you know, walking down Fifth Avenue, lifting, moving, lifting, placing, lifting, placing, very mindful, and people are going by, it doesn't matter, it's just like the forest. Finally I come, and there's Elizabeth Arden, so I'm standing there waiting very quietly, you know, Four o'clock comes, nobody. Four fifteen, nobody. Hmm. I, you know, I know how to wait. That's four thirty, nobody. All right, so I go inside. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm looking for, um, you know, Mrs. Cornfield. Oh yes, yes, she's here. She's having the day long, whatever it is. Um, uh, would you go up? There's a waiting lounge on the fourth floor. Oh, thank you. I'll go and open the elevator, go up to the fourth floor, I come out. The receptionist, may I help you? I, I'm waiting for Mrs. Cornfield. Fine, please take a seat. So I'm sitting there, and what to do? I mean, what is, what, what if I'm trained? I just meditate, you know. I sit there and close my eyes, and I start to meditate. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm meditating and just kind of following my breath, and I start hearing these voices around. Do you see? And, and, and um, can you imagine? And, and all, you know, and how strange. And so I open my eyes, and I look around, and there are this, this group of women. They're all wearing these Elizabeth Arden, they look like nighties, they're smocks, you know. And their hairs are in, hairs in curlers, and there's green cream and white stuff. <laughs> You know, and they're all saying, he looks so strange, and I opened my eyes. <laughs> it was, it was an amazing moment. <laughs> Hard to tell what's really strange in this world. At some point after that, I disrobed and I went back. I didn't know what to do for work. I started working in a mental hospital, thinking that meditation would be helpful for the, for the patients. Turned out it wasn't, because most of the people who were really uh, psychotic, it was an acute um, ward, and then a, then a back ward as well. Their, the very definition of their illness was that they were unable to pay attention without identifying. And some, but the people who really needed the meditation were the staff the doctors and nurses and people who were, it was really run on the basis of fear, as anyone who's worked in a state hospital knows, drug them and keep them quiet. And uh, people were afraid of the states and things they were going through. And um, So I discovered the meditation for the patients that was most useful was very grounding things, was, was um, tai chi or yoga or working in the garden or things to bring them back into their bodies. But uh, it was the doctors and nurses and attendants for whom the meditation was most important. I went to graduate school and then began to teach. I was invited to teach at Naropa Institute. The first year it started with Ram Dass and Jogim Trumpa Rinpoche. I met uh, Trumpa at a cocktail party where he was drunk, as is often the case, in Cambridge. And he said, come on, you know, you join the faculty, come and teach. And I wasn't really quite ready to teach then, but he said, oh, that's good. That means you're really ready, so come. And uh, since then I've been teaching pretty much uh, uh, constantly in traveling. I have, a, I have a lot more things I want to talk about, 
But what I'd like to do, since it's 11, is to take a, take a little break <clears throat> this morning. And um, you can take some tea. I'd also ask that you take maybe five minutes to walk outside, um, take a little fresh air. And I want you to reflect on something. Reflection is one kind of meditation. And the thing that I'd like you to reflect on for yourself, because this is the last morning that I'll be teaching, although I'll be here until Saturday morning, um, you've had some Zen practice from Kathleen and different Buddhist practices and the breathing and Father Bede representing Christian practice and some Hindu practice and you'll get the Tibetan and a shaman next week and some Tantra things. Um, reflect it when you go out and be quiet a little bit on what you sense in yourself that your own spiritual training needs. You know, does it need discipline? Or does it need concentration? Or does it need more self-acceptance and love? Or do you need more silence in your life and stillness? You know, or do you need more service and more opportunity to give to people? Or maybe you need all of the above, I don't know. You know? But really listen inside, because for me the purpose of this month long is a kind of, it's a, an opportunity to do some work, as clearly happens in the breathing and so forth, but it's also a place to, to begin to sense a new direction for oneself, or to sense what one can use or undertake to continue to open one's heart and one's life. So as you take a break, please take a little time to walk and think about what aspect of practice really would help you and what you need. Whether you do it or not is a second question, but just look at that in yourself. And then I'll ring the bell and we'll come back in, in 10 or 15 minutes. Two elements that seem most essential in undertaking a spiritual practice, whether it's Christian or Hindu or, or whatever you choose, seem to be the element of simplicity. Real practice isn't very complicated, really. It's working with what presents itself. And, uh, and a certain amount of courage it's the kind of courage that's also necessary when we do the breathing, of really letting yourself go into whatever arises in you. It's from Don Juan's teaching to Carlos again. He says, only as a warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge. A warrior cannot complain or regret anything. Their life is an endless challenge, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. The basic difference between an ordinary person and a warrior is that a warrior takes everything as a challenge, while an ordinary person takes everything either as a blessing or a curse. And it's really that spirit that what comes to you, and you could see it in that film last night, that what came was what was to be worked with and learned from. And I was very struck in the conference in Davos when Robert Bly was telling stories of, of um, castles and princes and wild men and adventures and stuff. And he's talked about grief and he said, you know, when you become older you really learn about 
about suffering and you learn about grief and you realize that it nourishes you in some way, that it's not such a terrible thing, but there's a, some kind of nourishment also that comes even from the difficulties in your life. So it's that, it's really a spirit of play. It's a willingness to, to go into the, to, um, the unknown um, in your practice. Your practice must move from what you know to what you don't know, where you've never been. There's a story which I think a few of you have heard of uh, an old Hasidic rabbi who is living in Russia in the old days and walking in the morning one morning to go to the temple to pray. He meets the, meets the police chief in the middle of the town square. The police chief is a Cossack in a very bad, angry mood that morning. So the police chief says, well, good morning, Rebbe, where are you going? And the Rebbe says, I don't know. And the police chief, who's in such a rotten mood, grabs him by the arm and says, what do you mean you don't know? For 25 years, every single morning, you've walked across the town square this direction to go to the temple to pray. How dare you be so insolent? And he grabs him and drags him over to the police station. And he's just about to push him into the jail cell. And the Rebbe turns around and says, you see, you don't know. <laughs> And that's really the, the spirit of courage or humility or whatever you want to call it. It's not so much being humble or being terribly courageous. It's just realizing that genuinely in our lives we don't know. And you don't know what's going to happen tonight. There's, oh, there's a Paul Horn concert, right? Supposedly. But all the mountain might choose today to slide down. We'll all find ourselves <laughs> swimming out there with the otters or something. Or you don't know when you're going to die. That's a fairly big thing not to know, you realize. You know? Or what is the nature of consciousness? Or how did we get this kind of body with all these things attached to it and fur in certain places and things? We don't know. And it's really more that sense of opening to the, to the mystery of things and realizing that our spiritual practice, too, is not like going down some marked path, but it's more like some uncharted stream in the jungle or, uh, you know, some flower, some plant you've got in the desert and it's going to blossom and you have no idea what the flower is going to be like. Um, it's not subject to imitation. You can't find somebody as I said, whether it's Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King, you can't find anybody to imitate. You really have to find it in yourself in some way. It's funny, in that, in that study of the sex lives of gurus, uh, what I discovered in interviews and talking to people, it's not finished and I'm not sure I'd ever publish it, but um, you know, six out of ten lamas do this and four out of five swamis and 10 out of 15 Zen masters, is that just about everything that you would imagine someone could do, they do. And there's this huge range of people who are celibate and very happily celibate, you know, and people who are as, I don't know whether promiscuous is the right word or not, but people like Trumper Rinpoche who, who slept with a different student every night for a long time with some, you know, and then the whole spectrum in between of uh, all, and, and you think, well, gee, to be a Zen master or a Swami means to be in this way or that way, and it's not at all. It's really to find your own expression in your speech, in your actions, in yourself of, of, of wisdom, of enlightenment. It's not imitative. You know, there's something taught, I'll give you one list today just kind of to, to 
throw a little regular Buddhist teachings in here, which is called the near enemies. And there's that thing I ended up with a, a, a couple of few sessions ago of the of the divine abidings of compassion and love and equanimity and spiritual joy and so forth. Well, they each have a near enemy. The near enemy to love is attachment. The near enemy to compassion is pity. The near enemy to equanimity is indifference. Each of those states comes in the kind of masquerades as, as the other. A- attachment comes and it kind of masquerades as love. Well, I love you and I really, really love you a lot and I need you and I want you to be there for me the way I want and so forth. And it feels sort of like love, but the basic difference is that it, it's based on separation, that you're outside me and I can't do without you. I'm not complete without you being there. Instead of the sense of love as, a, as an appreciation in the, in the space. Or the pity is the same. It says, oh, that poor person, they're suffering, you know. It's too bad and maybe I can help them in some tears, but it's like, they're different than me. Whereas compassion comes, as love does, from a place that sees that we're not any different. They're suffering, and I'm suffering, and we're all in the, all in the same dance, in the same circumstance of life together. And it's only really when you've let yourself listen to your own fears and sorrow and loneliness and all those kind of inner voices, what Zorba the Greek called the whole catastrophe, that, that real compassion comes. And it comes then when somebody else is, is, is grieving or sorrow or suffering. And you see, and it's not like, oh, they're different, but I know that. I've touched that in myself. And there's this kind of bond or connection or oneness. The same is true and even more important for equanimity. You know, there's the uh, teaching very glibly in spiritual practice, well, well um, non-attachment. Um, and then people think, well, that means not to care. And that's indifference. Indifference says, I don't care, fuck you all, you know, I'll do my own thing and the world can go in its own way. And that's a very different state of mind than equanimity. Equanimity is a balance and an openness in the middle of experience, not resisting it, not grasping it. And indifference is, a, is, a, is based on fear, it's a closing off. Gandhi said, to love the universal and all-pervading spirit of truth face to face, one must be able to love the meanest creature as oneself and to love the meanest part of oneself. Whoever aspires after that cannot keep out of any field of life, and those who say that religion has nothing to do with politics do not know what religion really means. You cannot separate your own inner practice from that of the world around us, you know, that they're, they're inextricably intertwined. And you could see that as what Martin Luther King was saying over and over again. And the, the, what the world needs, you know, it doesn't need more oil or more energy or more food. There's enough food and there's enough, there's enough. It doesn't need more buildings or art even. It needs less greed and hoarding and, and prejudice and hatred. Those are the things that make wars. Why don't people get food? There's enough. Because we keep it for ourselves and, and them, those who are different, don't get it. It needs less greed and hate and fear, and it needs more love, more than anything else. People think that to be non-attached means not somehow to engage in life. Non-attachment and commitment are completely compatible and actually necessary 
Non-attachment is the expression of wisdom, and commitment is the expression of compassion. Wisdom really means seeing that one is not separate. So that if you come in to do a meditation practice, and you decide to sit, and you sit, and then your knee hurts, or you get a little bit restless, or um, something unpleasant comes, and you get up and you go out, you know, and then you come and you try again, and then some, uh, your back hurts, or some other difficulty comes, and so you get up and you leave. Will you ever learn to meditate? It's not possible. You know? Or if you get in a relationship with someone, and the first time, or the 30th time or whatever it is, 300th time, something difficult starts to happen. And you say, oh, well, there's somebody better. I know there's someone else out there. It doesn't become a place of growing of your practice at all. It's just like looking for, for only pleasure and not opening to the dance of up and down and light and dark and pleasure and pain. And what's required for your meditation, what's required in your work and in your relationship, doesn't mean that one might not change jobs sometimes or get divorced uh, at some point, perhaps. But for the most part, what is required is more commitment, is a willingness to stay with things in work, not just to be attached, I'll be with you and as a security pact, but to use it as a way to grow, that this is our dance together and I want to be with you so that each of us can grow to be more whole, more complete, more conscious. And then you work with all the difficulties as a part, as a spirit of practice. And it's not at all indifference, but it's the, it's the, the deepest kind of caring that comes. It takes a lot of courage. It's really the courage to engage in, in life. And of course, there's a dance for oneself. Sometimes it's appropriate to be in the marketplace, and sometimes it's appropriate to go off in the cave and meditate and find some, some, something deep inside oneself and then bring it back as a gift again to the marketplace. And there's kind of in and out cycles, as well as, I'm sure you've noticed, the up and down cycles. And they're all a part of practice. It's, it's really fluid. So the first thing is courage to realize that, that nobody's done it like you. No one can tell you how to do it. You've got to find your own way. And the second is simplicity. Zen master Nyogen Senzaki, right before he died, he called his students together and he said, friends in the Dharma, do not put any false heads above your own, which is to say, don't imitate somebody else. Then moment after moment, watch your steps closely and then he died. That was it. Those two things. Don't imitate, and then be there for what you do. I remember going to see this great Tibetan Lama, Dujam Rinpoche, who, along with the Dalai Lama, is the head of one of the four main Tibetan schools, sects, the Nyingmapa, the old Tantra school. And I went and I paid my respects, and I heard him teach, and then I got an interview with him. I was all excited. Here's this great Tantra master. I can ask some questions, you know. So I went and I <coughs> sat and talked to him a little bit, and I said, you know, I have a real problem. I teach these retreats around the country, and after I teach for a while, I just get overwhelmed. I get tired, and I take on a whole lot of stuff in my body, and... Uh, I lose my sense of balance and equanimity. And can you give me some practice to do to kind of shield myself or keep myself from taking on too much? You know, and I thought, well, he's tantric master. And he said, well, what are they like? What do you teach? And he got all the details and what precepts do I keep and so forth. And so he said, yes, I think I can help you. And he meditated for a while and 
thought, and I was really excited. Well, he'll give me a mantra to say, which dissolves all the all the evil things that come, or he'll give me a visualization of the of the bodhisattva of compassion and white light surround myself, and I'll be all safe. So he says, "Yes, I can help you." Meditated for a little bit. He said, "I would recommend." that you teach shorter retreats and take longer vacations. <laughs> it was, was exquisite. I mean, this is great tantric master. And Aldous Huxley said when he died, he said, after all of my spiritual readings and travel and whatever, he said, I, I seem to have discovered that it all comes down to being kinder. Be kinder to oneself, kinder to others. That process of opening really is one of kindness, of self-acceptance. Um, and I remember uh, uh, right after the first summer at Naropa, there was a young girl who went back to live um, in her family home in uh, it was Saskatchewan or Alberta or one of those places out in the middle of no place. And she wrote a letter back to Ramdas saying how hard it was because her parents were fundamentalist uh, Christians. And she said, I came back and I tried to do my Buddhist meditation, set up a little puja and whatever. And they were just horrified and they called the minister or priest in to do an exorcism and it was just awful. And she closed her letter with something very wise. She said, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. And that's really the difference. It's not to be a meditator or a spiritual person or to take on some new false persona. But to act out of that place in your own heart that really knows in a very simple way. We went to interview the Dalai Lama and these various people for National Public Radio last year for a show on spirituality and social responsibility and got some, some interviews which will be published later this year, Mother Teresa and Dalai Lama and various people. And at the end of our interview with the Dalai Lama, he greeted us and talk to us for a while. Then we were about to get up and he said, don't you want to take my picture? And we all had cameras. Of course, we were dying to take his picture. He kind of ran. We said, oh, we do. He said, well, listen, you give your cameras to my attendant and then, uh, then we can all be in the picture together. It was really sweet. So we gave our cameras and the attendant had it and he put his arms around. There were four of us and kind of held us and we all, all grinning and smiling. And he held my hand and, and then he, he uh, the pictures was taken over and he turned to me and said, you know, he said, you're so skinny, you should eat more. And it was the sweetest thing. It was just like your grandmother, you know. And that, that was the teaching from him. He talked about nuclear war and, and dharma practice and shunyata and emptiness and stuff. But the teaching was, was just how incredibly present and kind he was. It's not like, well, I'm the Dalai Lama and you sit down there. But just a real caring and kindness with each person that he met. I'm going to read you something and then we'll have a question and answer period for a while. Um, I studied with one other teacher who was an old man in Bombay named Nisargadatta Maharaj. wrote a couple of wonder very wonderful books called I Am That. They're hard to find. You can get them in spiritual bookstores. And they're the best Dharma books I think I've ever read. Um, and he was 80 years old when I met him, and he had a little stand on the street selling beadies, Indian cigarettes. Um, he happened to be an enlightened beady salesman. Um, 
And he taught in his little apartment in the slums in Bombay. People would go and he would ask them questions and, and work with them in kind of dialogue, a little bit like a combination of Fritz Perls and the Buddha put together. And you'd come and you didn't kind of work your way up to him, but when you came in as a new student, he'd sit you right down in front of him and say, where have you come from? And you could answer on whatever level you wanted. You know, you could say, I came from New York, or there's no such thing as coming or going. It's all, all just my, or whatever. And then he'd test you to see if you really meant what you said. But one time someone walked in the room and they uh, listened to a couple of questions and then they left. And someone said, Maharaj, what's going to happen to that person? They didn't even stay for the, uh, for the whole teaching this morning. Will they ever become awakened? And he said, yep, it's too late for them also. He said, once you start, and it's too late for all of you now that you're here, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're, you're on the roller coaster. Once that place in you opens up that says, who am I, or what is this about, or what is consciousness, or the birth and death, it's like that, that within you which really knows has begun to ask that question. And even if you leave and you don't do anything for a while, it's still going to be in there and it's going to kind of grow. And it's true for, as I said, for everyone in this room. You know, this is kind of like a, a Buddha factory or something and you're all going to turn into different kinds of Buddhas. But it's happening whether you, whether you know it or not. Anyway, I, I read this because... It's just an extraordinary thing. Most, pe most teachers don't talk about their enlightenment so directly. But someone asked him, they said, I see you sitting here in your, in, your, uh, in your house waiting for lunch to be served, and I wonder whether the content of your consciousness is similar to mine or partly different or totally different. Are you hungry and thirsty as I am, waiting rather impatiently for, for the meal to be served? Are you in altogether some different state of mind? And he answers very directly. He says, there's not much difference on the surface, but very much in the depth of it. You know yourself only through the senses and the mind, and you take this yourself to be what they suggest. Having no direct knowledge of reality, you have mere ideas, all secondhand, all hearsay. Whatever you think you are at a certain moment, you take it to be true. The habit of imagining yourself to be the body or the feelings or the senses, to be perceivable and describable, is very strong with you. I see as you see and hear as you hear, taste like you, eat like you. I also feel thirst and hunger and expect my food to be served on time. When starved or sick, my body and mind go weak. All this I perceive quite clearly, but somehow I am not in it. I feel myself as if floating over it, aloof and detached. Even not aloof and detached, there's aloofness and detachment as there is thirst and hunger. There's the awareness of it all and also a sense of immense distance, as if the body and mind and all that happens to them were somewhere far out on the horizon. It's like a screen, clear and empty. The pictures pass over it and disappear, and in no way is the screen affected by the pictures, nor are the pictures affected by the screen. Well, when I ask you a question, this person said, and you answer, what exactly happens? He said, the question and the answer both appear on the screen. The lips move, the body speaks, and again the screen is clear and empty. 
but I am neither the subject nor the object. I don't understand what you mean, saying you're neither the subject nor the object. At this moment as we talk, am I not the object of your experience and you the subjective one receiving it? Look, he says to end, my thumb touches my forefinger. Both touch and are touched. When my attention is on the thumb, the thumb is the feeler and the forefinger the self. Shift the focus of attention and the relationship is reversed. I find that somehow by opening and shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You can give it any name you like. Love says I am everything, and wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Since at any point of time or space, I could be both the subject and the object of experience it, I express it by saying that I am both and neither and actually beyond. Through all this flows tremendous joy. In the immensity of the silence, there is only one movement, the movement of love. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you like the show, please subscribe. If you want to get in touch, our email is voices at esalen.org. Upcoming at Esalen, Grief into Beauty, Creating Nature Altars to Transform and Heal from This Year. From October 29th to 31st, internationally renowned author and artist Day Schildkret of Morning Altars will teach students how to use nature, art, and ritual to transform, heal, and to make meaning from this chaotic time. Sign up at esalen.org workshops. Until next time, be well.